This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological uh, Cancer. And uh, today I have the great pleasure of welcoming back <laughs> Jonathan Letterman, who uh, obviously many of you know. Uh, and uh, the topic of this uh, discussion is going to be a recent publication in Lancet Oncology, um, much awaited publication and, and study on uh, weekly dose dense chemotherapy in first line epithelial ovarian fallopian tube or primary peritoneal cancer treatment, uh, ICON 8 overall survival results from an open label randomized control phase three trial. Jonathan, thank you so much once again for joining us. Thank you for accepting our invitation. Always a pleasure uh, speaking with you. It's a pleasure to speak with you, Pedro. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Fantastic. So, Jonathan, I wanted to start by asking you first if you could start um, by discussing a little bit about ICON-8, the, the rationale for the trial and, uh, and the results of the original publication on this trial when evaluating uh, progression-free survival. Um, and then subsequently, obviously, the, 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 the rationale for this trial that we're going to be talking about. Sure. Well, you know, if we go back to 2013, we uh, saw some really very provocative information that came out of the Japanese gynae oncology group that looked at the question of dose-dense paclitaxel with three-weekly carboplatin. And they showed a significant improvement in both progression-free survival and then when they uh, presented the follow-up data, uh, overall survival using uh, weekly paclitaxel. So this really, we thought, represented a major change in care, um, uh, but we felt that uh, it really needed, the results really need to be replicated uh, and replicated in uh, different, different populations, non-Japanese populations. So we, amongst others, set about uh, developing a randomized uh, trial really to, to address this question. And that's what a ICON-8 is. It takes standard three-weekly carboplatin paclitaxel and compares it to two dose-dense uh, regimens, the a Japanese type regimen where the carboplatin was given three weekly and the paclitaxel was given weekly, and then a weekly regimen in which the carboplatin was also fractionated weekly with weekly carboplatin. Uh, this was an international uh, collaboration, academic collaboration through the Gynecological Cancer Intergroup uh, with six uh, countries participating. Well, fantastic. And and I think that, you know, you certainly highlighted something very important. You wanted to evaluate in a non-Japanese population. And I was wondering if you can speak a little bit about these uh, specific inclusion criteria for um, ICON-8. And, um, and, and uh, I think you, you briefly mentioned a little bit about the details of each arm, but particularly who, who were the patients that you wanted to include in this uh, in this trial? So we wanted to uh, include patients that really reflected um, the general experience that we have of patient, treating patients with ovarian cancer. Um, now, it was mainly focused on patients with advanced ovarian cancer, but we did allow a group up to 10%, it was then capped, of stage 1 and 2A cancer. But I think the big change change that was occurring uh, during this time uh, internationally was the use or the increasing use, I should say, of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to allow patients in who either had primary surgery or uh, because of a decision that was made in the multidisciplinary team setting, uh, the patient was offered uh, primary chemotherapy or neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by interval cytoreductive surgery. So those were not randomized patients, but they were two groups of patients that were allowed in and then subsequently randomized to one of the three arms. 
Yeah, and actually that that brings me to to the next question. That was a question we had as a discussion with with our our, our team of fellows was the issue as to uh, bringing in that group of patients who underwent interval um, surgery. Do you think that this could potentially have impacted uh, results? What 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 are your thoughts? Well, we presented the results um, both together and separately. Um, I mean, not in any comparative way separately because there was no randomization between the two. But I think it reflects, and it was actually very interesting to see the very big differences in uh, overall survival in the cohort uh, that was offered primary surgery and the cohort that was offered neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Now, just digressing a moment, we've seen in a lot of the trials that have been done uh, with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, you know, no difference in the survival. If you randomize to one or the other, that is true. But in all cases, the overall survival of patients in any of the neoadjuvant chemotherapy studies has been inferior to the ones uh, in prim with primary surgery. Now, we don't know whether that's biology, selection, surgical um, techniques, and so forth. Uh, but this, again, showed this big difference in this, this these two cohorts of patients. Interesting, very, very interesting. So one of, one of the questions in terms of the methodology came from one of our fellows, um, and she was asking, uh, why did the authors choose a, a p-value cutoff of 0 0.025 and not the usual 0.05 yeah. that uh, are yeah. familiar with. You know, I, I think that we we wanted to be sure that if we were seeing a difference, that this is going to be a, a, a secure difference, a clinically significant, clinically meaningful difference, because what we're talking about here is potentially a trial that was going to change practice forever or for a long time that we would you know move all of us to weekly chemotherapy so we didn't want to have a, a, a result that would make us sort of sit on the fence you know it was just just under 0 0.05 or something like that and we would debate was this really significant or not so that was the reason why uh that was set so you you wanted to have extra confidence <laughs> indeed indeed <laughs> So now tell us about the, the results, the take-home messages of uh, ICON-8 overall survival. Well, when we first saw the progression-free survival, and of course there were co-primary endpoints of progression-free and overall survival, um, we did not see any improvement in progression-free survival with either of the two weekly arms when compared with the three weekly arm. And similarly, uh, we did not see any improvement in, in overall survival either. So within the cohort of patients who had primary surgery, uh, there was no difference uh, in the three arms. And again, there was no difference in the three arms that had interval cytoreductive surgery. Great. And, and one of the, the follow-up questions to that is, um, what about differences uh, with regards to stage or with regards to histology? As you know, this always comes up. So we allowed 10% of the patients uh, in with stage one or 2A disease, but it was capped at that because we were really interested in um, the patients with more advanced disease who are clearly a, a more common group of patients. And the vast majority of patients had high-grade serous uh, ovarian cancer, the most common uh, variant of ovarian cancer. 
but the pathology was not independently reviewed. So we did have a, a, a mix of, of, of some pathologies. Some were reported as you know, a mixture of serous and others, but actually they were well balanced across the three arms. We had about 6% or so of clear cell cancers, which is an important mm. group, but it was again, well distributed across uh, the three arms, which incidentally, there was over 1500 patients in this trial. So, you know, yeah. those sorts of variables do then tend to balance out when you've got such a large number randomized. Great. And, and Jonathan, one of the questions that always comes up, particularly when comparing these different types of regimens, is uh, the issue of safety and toxicity profile. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, what you saw in Icon 8? Well, that, that, that's a very important issue. And we were certainly struck by the fact that, you know, in the Japanese study, there was more toxicity with weekly paclitaxel. Um, and there were a number of patients who were, were drop, dropping out. Uh, so we wanted to look at this very closely. Uh, but actually, interestingly, we saw that, yes, there were a slightly higher number of grade three adverse events, mainly due to um, increased myelosuppression in the weekly arms. But this was really uh, not very much different from the three weekly. So this was not a major determinant. Uh, it was really the absence of any difference in progression-free or overall survival, uh, which was the most important finding in the trial. Yeah, and I think I, it makes it somewhat easier to then make a decision as to how, how to proceed. Um, one of the questions also that came from uh, one of our fellows was, uh, and I think it's, this becomes a, a general question these days with regards to when evaluating overall survival, uh, the impact of how the patient got treated at the time of recurrence and from there on forward. Um, your thoughts with regards to that and how this could have um, had an impact in the results? Well, the first thing to say is actually we um, underestimated the uh, survival of these patients. So we took the data, uh, you know, from past trials and past experiences, um, you know, when trying to, to evaluate how many patients we need in the study and the statistics and so forth. So both arms of these, uh, sorry, in all arms of the, the study, um, the patients did better than we expected, uh, both in the cohort of primary surgery and in the cohort, interestingly, of uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, so this, I think, says something about the quality of care of patients enrolled in clinical trials, because most of those patients enrolled in the trial will stay connected to the center, the trial center, when they have a recurrence, and so will undergo uh, treatment for recurrence, perhaps uh, in another clinical trial or certainly in that center, uh, which I think does explain why we were seeing superior um, survivals in both those cohorts to, to what we had anticipated. But I mean, to answer your question, you know, uh, uh, of course, um, progression, I mean, if we see no difference in progression-free survival, that tells us that probably the technology, namely the weekly treatment, is not impacting uh, in terms of a time to progression. Um, the, the overall survival just really reaffirms that. It would be very strange, I think, uh, when you've finished a drug like paclitaxel to then see a difference emerging in overall survival. It's, it's possible, you know, it's possible that, you know, you could have damaged bone marrow with a weekly treatment so that um, they couldn't have any more chemotherapy, in which case you might even seen an inferior survival. Uh, but generally, if you haven't seen an improvement in the progression-free survival with a chemotherapy as opposed to immunotherapy, you are mm. unlikely to see an improvement in overall survival either. 
Fantastic. And um, the next question uh, comes from uh, another one of our fellows. With regards to the BRCA status of the patients, um, do you have any information about that uh, in this particular group of patients? This was a lot of patients, as you mentioned before. Um, how could this have impacted your results? Yeah. So, of course, you know, none of the old trials that we've done had any prospective evaluation of BRCA status. And at that time, you know, there were some patients maybe who were having BRCA status tested just because they had a family history, uh, but it wasn't wasn't done in, in any uh, regu regular way. Of course, we now know that um, BRCA status is a predictive factor for response and, and a prognostic factor probably too in terms of, of outcome. So I think what all I can say is that, you know, with all the variables that we know were balanced across 1,500 patients, I expect that there were patients with BRCA mutations, but I, I, I think that they would probably would have been balanced across across all three arms. Um, so, it, you know, it's not possible for us to, to delve into that unless we went back and tested everybody for a BRCA mutation as to whether or not there was a better or less good effect of a weekly treatment within patients with a BRCA mutation. Yeah, and again, I think it goes back to the point of, you know, asking too much of a trial when that was not the original intent uh, of the trial yeah. design. Yeah. Um, um, with regards to, you mentioned that patients who had primary surgery seemed to do better. Um, one of the other questions that came up was, that, is there a difference uh, in terms of stratification with regards to the efficacy of that primary surgery, the R0 versus less than one centimeter versus suboptimal? Um, what are your thoughts? Well, actually, it wasn't the subject of this particular paper, but a, a paper came out a short while before in Lancet Oncology, looking more at the surgical component, particularly the patients who are undergoing neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, and actually, in terms of the absence of, res of residual disease, it was equally balanced across uh, three arms. So I think that's encouraging because we know that the residual disease is a, a predictive factor um, for, for further, further treatment. Um, but what was interesting, uh, in that other paper from, uh, Robert Morgan and colleagues was that patients who had only, uh, a partial response or stable disease seemed to fare as well, not only surgically, uh, but also in the post-surgical, uh, phase. Uh, meaning that if patients have only had a, a modest response and you have um, planned them for surgery, um, that unless the disease is clearly progressing, um, really these patients should be offered surgery. Now, there's a tendency to say, well, the patient's not responding very well. I don't think I'm going to operate on the patient. <laughs> well, the data from, from that subgroup analysis suggested otherwise, uh, and that uh, those patients should be considered. Uh, and indeed, those patients had the same levels of cytoreduction to no residual disease as those patients who had, let's say, a partial response to treatment. Great. Um, one of our uh, fellows also asked with regards to the fact that there was no statistical difference in overall survival uh, among the three groups. Um, but he does point out that there was a difference of about half a year between group one, which I believe was the three weekly carboplatinum and three weekly paclitaxel versus groups two and three. And if you had any thoughts on on that finding. Okay. Well, I think that the, the message here is, you know, how we how we should look at uh, Kaplan-Meier curves. Um, <laughs> and there's a little bit of a danger of over-interpreting what we see. 
Um, I think the best way of assessing a difference between two curves is to look at the hazard ratio, uh, which really gives a proportional difference uh, between uh, between two two treatments, let's say, or three treatments in in, in this case, um, and so the hazard ratios were you know close up to one, and and therefore the curves were really not different. The second is to look at medians, and even medians can be problematic um, because sometimes medians can can split apart, even though the hazard ratios uh, don't suggest a benefit. So. It's only a measure at one point in time, a median. Um, so we, we shouldn't put too much weight on, on medians. Um, and of course, looking at other sections of the curve also uh, uh, is, is, is open to overinterpretation. So I think the thing to focus on here is the, the hazard ratio and the hazard ratio really did not show any difference between the curves. Yeah, I think that that's really important. And I'm so glad you articulated that so well, because I think that it's very important, you know, certainly not only for our trainees to understand that principle when evaluating and interpreting studies, uh, but also, you know, for, for many uh, of, our, of our listeners to really pay attention to that segment that you just uh, mentioned uh, as well. Now, um, I think obviously then the big question is as to why the results of ICON-8 are different from those of the Japanese study. And, and I think that, you know, this, this is what many uh, who actually might've changed their practice based on the results of the Japanese study will want to know. Um, mm. What's the difference mm. here? Mm. Well, I mean, you know, ICON-8 was not the only trial that failed to, um, uh, to show a, a difference with, with weekly chemotherapy. The GOG-262 trial, uh, which was of a similar design, uh, also did not show any difference in either progression-free or overall survival. It's a little bit more complicated because some of those patients uh, elected to have bevacizumab, and there were differences between the bevacizumab and the non-bevacizumab group, but that was not in a randomized setting. Um, but it sort of, it muddied the water a, a little bit. Um, but really, none of the trials have confirmed the Japanese study. So what is what is different about the Japanese study? Well, there may be something in terms of the genetics and pharmacogenetics of these drugs uh, in Japanese patients. Uh, I think when you look at the different types of histology, they are more similar, although there are uh, more patients with endometrioid and, and, and clear cell cancers in the Japanese population, which may have a, had a bearing on it, although it's not immediately obvious why that should have a differential effect in terms of uh, weekly chemotherapy as opposed to just a better overall survival. And in fact, there was an interesting um, SEER study looking at uh, Asian population within this bi the big uh, American uh, data collection and actually even controlling for age, types of histology and so forth. Asian background uh, did come out uh, as a, a factor. It wasn't a huge difference, but had a, a better outcome uh, of treatment. That doesn't, again, tell you that weekly is better than three weekly. But I think it just tells us that we have to look at the demographics of our patients in clinical trials. And we have to be aware that there may well be differences in the pharmacogenetics of uh, different populations. And we have to make sure that we balance that uh, when we look at patients uh, undergoing novel treatments. Fantastic. And, um, and Jonathan, as a, as a last question to our um, discussion, you mentioned ICON 8B. Uh, what is that trial? So the ICON-8 program uh, was essentially to look at uh, weekly chemotherapy. 
but we also realized as time went on and of course these trials have a sort of long gestation and they're sort of like <laughs> super tankers you know once they start you know the world moves on but they're hard to to, to navigate it was clear that bevacizumab was becoming more and more uh, used in in uh, the treatment of ovarian cancer and was becoming a standard of care in the treatment of ovarian cancer so we really felt that we had to put uh, bevacizumab into this weekly uh, pot um, and compared initially as a three-arm study uh, the Japanese regimen against a three-weekly and weekly regimen with bevacizumab mm -hmm. however we changed icon 8b when we first saw the results the pre progression free survival results of icon 8 and felt we couldn't really continue with a standard arm which was just a weekly uh japanese regimen uh, mm. and so we looked at three weekly with bevacizumab versus weekly with bevacizumab uh, and that's the icon 8b trial again it'll ask the question about weekly paclitaxel but controlled for carboplatin and controlled uh, for bevacizumab. So that trial has finished recruitment, 660 patients thereabouts, um, and should be ready for analysis in the first quarter of 2023. Fantastic. So we definitely look forward to uh, the presentation on that trial. Um, Jonathan Letterman, thank you so, so much once again for your, your time, your discussion about this important trial. Uh, thank you again for accepting our invitations every time we invite you to our podcast. And of course, obviously, thank you for the contributions you have made and con continue to make to G1 Oncology. Thank you, Pedro. It's a pleasure speaking to you. Thanks very much.